finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where I talk about books with my mom, and sometimes those books are about skinless sex creeps. As is the case this week, where we're discussing The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker, and also the film adaptation, Hellraiser, which I believe was also written and directed by Clive Barker. That's right. So, yeah. Should we... Uh, Well, let's give a little background about The Hellbound Heart. So, The Hellbound Heart is a novella that Clive Barker wrote in 1986, and it was part of an anthology, which, interestingly enough, was edited by George R.R. Martin, who at the time was writing horror novels. It's Night Visions, right? Right. It's the third volume of Night Visions. So... When he made, when the movie became, when he decided to work on the movie, they re-released The Hellbound Heart as a novel in 1988 as a standalone novella. So Barker is, he's a British writer who lives in the United States and he mostly writes horror and fantasy. He um, is known for short stories. His most popular short stories is his, I think it's six volumes at this point. He always threatens to create more volumes but he hasn't at this point of his books of blood which are just volumes upon volumes of horror short stories that Clive Barker has written from the 80s to I guess maybe the mid 90s uh well I actually don't think that I think that the last one came out in like 1985 right okay so you know maybe late 70s mid 80s they're very Um, much a part of the 80s British horror scene. So, but Clive Parker is a little bit more than just a writer. He's also an artist, a performance artist. He's a director. He writes screenplays. He um, works in comic books. It pretty much does like a lot of different things. Video games as well. He's done some some work in the video game industry. Uh, I don't think any of it's been especially good, but it definitely happened. I think this novella is not as well known as the movie that it spawned and then the series that was spawned, the Hellraiser series and the iconic horror imagery of Pinhead and the other Cenobites. But the novella is pretty good. It's really like a gothic horror story. And um, it speaks a lot about Clive Barker and his aesthetic and also the belief system that he holds. I mean, just from reading this book, you can tell that Clive Barker hates organized religion. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think this book is as... I don't think this book takes too firm a stance on organized religion. I mean, it definitely co-ops some... It definitely co-ops some of the, like, aesthetic and imagery of, like, Christian monastic orders. I actually think the movie does more of that than the book does. I think this is an interesting... Um, example, an interesting exercise in adaptation because it's one of the few cases where the movie is expanded from the novel. Because the novel is like 186 pages, I think. Right. It's really short and slight. And so they end up having to add quite a bit to the movie to, you know, get it to be a feature length film. And even then, it's only, I think, like an hour and a half long. So let's put a pin in. Literally, let's put a pin in this discussion about Clive Barker's discussion about religion, and let's get 
a little bit into the synopsis of the story. I think I can do this pretty quickly unless you want to do it. No, go ahead. All right. So Frank Cotton is a creep who believes he has uh, exhausted every avenue for physical pleasure in the human realm. And so he gets his hands on this mysterious artifact called Lamarchand's box, which is a puzzle box. And he uses it in a ritual to summon these beings that live in another dimension. It might be hell. It might not be called the Order of the Gash, who are religiously devoted to a hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. And their definition of pleasure is not especially compatible with traditional human definitions of pleasure. So they give Frank a sort of mind-breaking sensory overload and then spirit him away to their dimension to pleasure torture him for all eternity. But some sort of sliver of his essence and consciousness lingers in the house where he did the ritual, which was his parents' Uh, house, I, I guess they're dead. It's never. I don't think it's ever exactly no, it's addressed. Never clear. And so his brother, Rory, uh, yeah, Rory. He's Rory in the book. He's Larry in the movie. Yes. Yeah. Rory moves into the house and brings along his wife, Julie. Uh, and it turns out that Julie had an affair with Frank right before their wedding, and he's still infatuated with him. And then when Rory bleeds onto some semen. That Frank left behind, it provides a sort of gateway for Frank to partially return to the human realm, but as a sort of skinless monster man. Right, he's he's not fully formed. Yeah, and so him and Julie rekindle their affair, but this time she is luring men back to the house to murder them so Frank can feed on their essence and begin to reconstitute himself. While all of this is happening, Rory's socially awkward friend Kirstie is infatuated with him, but doesn't act on those actions. And one day she comes by the house while Julie is engaged in a murder. And she comes to believe that Julie is cheating on Frank. And when she goes to have a conversation with her about it before she just totally blows up her spot and ruins her chances with Rory, uh, Frank attacks Kirstie, who is hospitalized, but not before she steals the box, Lamar Chance box, which she solves in the hospital, summoning the Cenobites of the Order of the Gash, with whom she cuts a deal. She'll give them Frank. They'll... They won't take her to the hell dimension to pleasure torture her. She goes back to the house, has a brutal confrontation with Frank, which results in Julie's death. And then she tricks Frank into revealing his identity, which is enough for the Cenobites to come and scoop him up. Uh, Kirstie is left as the keeper of the box until another creep comes along who wants it. And then the novel ends with her looking into its surface, seeing the faces of Julie and Frank, but not Rory. And then musing to herself that perhaps somewhere there is a puzzle that will open a gate to whatever realm Rory's spirit resides in now. That ending is part of why I don't think... This doesn't feel like as harsh a critique of organized religion as it might seem. I think I think the overarching storyline is not a comment on religion, but I think the Cenobites themselves are a direct comment on organized religion. Because throughout the story, he refers to the Cenobites and variations of things that could be names for priests. Like the Pinhead's name in the story and his actual name, according to Clive Barker, is the priest. But also there's a part where he calls him a hierophant. He, Frank refers to himself as daddy and father and brother, which are all also terms for religious male figures. And I think the... Order of the Gash is sort of a telling kind of title. It's almost like 
um, well, like gash has two connotations. You know, there's yeah. a violent connotation, and then there's a derogatory <laughs> a connotation. Connotation. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like. He's kind of, and then the way that the Cenobites work is, you know, you need to perform a ritual and then you need to leave an offering and then an offering becomes corrupted and then the Cenobites appear. And I feel like that's kind of like a reflection on religion. I guess. I don't know. I, 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 I don't, I don't feel, I don't know if there's much, if it is a critique on religion, I'm not entirely sure what he's trying to say. Well, I, I did want to say, though, if we, no one, if people don't know, the word Cenobite is not like a made-up fantasy term for these demons. It literally just means a member of a monastic order. Exactly. And, that, which, oh, and I think that's another telling option. Also, it's not clear upon the first read that the person who creates the box, who creates the torture devices... Le Machan is the creator of the box, and he's considered called the bird maker. And then he's the one who creates the box. He's a mechanical engineer. And then the person who creates the tortures and who the Cenobites worship is called the engineer. The engineer is another term that people use when they describe God. Sure. So I think that's kind of another connection to... The, it's sort of... I don't know if it's like sadomasochism as a religion or their work that they do in this like pleasure pain dynamic is just a manifestation of their sort of perversion of religion. I totally get what you're saying. I think the reason I still go back to that ending, though, because the ending seems to come down pretty hard on the like, yeah, souls exist, which means then like, yeah, probably God exists. And also because Rory doesn't end up in the realm of the Cenobites with Julie and Frank. But heaven seems... Like, the novel ends with the idea that, like, hmm, maybe there's a heaven, and maybe it's worthwhile to try and find it. I think it's pretty clear because part of the work that the Cenobites do is they drag... They, they are summoned, and then they drag people to hell. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty clear that they have some kind of hellish connection, whether they be demons or... Some other manifestation that lives in hell. But I think Christy is meant to be sort of the... She's like an opposite of Julia. So she's the light to Julia's darkness. Because Julia... It, at After she realizes that Frank is alive... She starts to lure men using her sexual prowess... To the house so that they can be murdered to feed Frank. So she sort of becomes this sort of... Um, a dark figure. So she's, I, you know, Christy's light and innocent and kind of, you know, unaware of what's going on. And Julia becomes a predator. So Frank has made her into a manifestation of himself so that he can use her to interact with the world. Yeah. See, what I think is more, more clear to me than this being a critique of religion is it's kind of like a cautionary tale about king culture and the sort of negative and toxic figures that might lurk therein because like frank is this incredible i mean he's, he's very appropriate like uh topically frank is this supremely entitled straight white dude who cannot conceive of things that are not made for him like and he cannot conceive of people as being anything besides something that exists for and at his pleasure like, the, even the idea that one could completely exhaust all avenues of human pleasure 
is like a super entitled and arrogant thing, which Frank actually himself cops to later on in his diminished state. But he summons the Cenobites, and it doesn't at any point, even though he's given ample, you know, visual and tonal warnings, it doesn't ever occur to him that this might not be for him. That this might not fit his definitions of pleasure and his sort of, like, heteronormative idea of, like, sex and kink. And then he is destroyed, like all entitled straight white dudes, he is utterly destroyed when he encounters something that isn't specifically made for him and to his tastes. I think it's also a comment, I mean, it was written in the 80s and it's set in the 80s. And it's pretty clear that Frank is sort of on the fringes of society because he's sort of this wandering kind of guy who doesn't really have a job and he kind of goes from one pleasure to the next. But Rory is a businessman and Julie is a businesswoman. And I think that kind of comment about the excess of greed is Clive Barker's way of commenting on this sort of greedy business culture of the late 1980s. Exactly. That's why I think it's kind of the opposite of what you say. I think it's a critique of disorganized religion. Frank is the embodiment of that sort of He's like a twisted reflection of that sort of, like, freewheeling, boomer, yuppie, consumerist spiritualism. He's the kind of guy who gets a Buddha statue, who buys an expensive Buddha statue for his house. Like, that, him seeking out the box and the order of the gash is, like, a super extreme and twisted version of, like, the white guy who goes to the Himalayas or lives on an ashram in India off of his trust fund. And he is, like exposed for what he really is in that moment which is like a predator who he doesn't have any he doesn't have the religious devotion to the idea of pleasure that the Cenobites do he just wants it for himself he's just trying to benefit for himself and then is rightfully destroyed for that that makes sense because I think it I mean one of the parts that are really important in the story one is this sort of um mention of this auditory um, sounds that preface the arrival of the Cenobites. And at the part where Frank is about to be dragged back to hell, he literally hears, like, bells tolling. Yeah. Like, church bells. And it's kind of like... I mean, it's kind of heavy-handed of Clive Barker. Because it's really like, for whom the bell tolls. Well, like, yeah. it tolls for Frank, and he's being dragged. And then it's kind of like... Almost like the bells are also like a redemptive sound for Christy because it's kind of like bringing her back to the... Because she's kind of having this almost this out-of-body experience. She's not quite sure if she believes that the Cenobites exist and she's kind of thinking that maybe she's having some kind of delusional break. And there's sort of a slight nod to her being like flaky and sort of out of like... Sometimes she, like, is totally zoned out and things like that. So I think she might be thinking, like, maybe this isn't real. But when she hears those bells and then, you know, Frank is dragged back, then she knows. Well, that happens when she wakes up in the hospital. She, it takes finding the box in her hand or being told she had the box in her hand for her to accept that her encounter with Frank actually even happened. But I was going to say the other thing. It's, like, just like that sort of, you know, yuppie zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance phony spiritualist frank is given a genuine religious experience he is he's connected to the universe via this crazy sensory overload thing and he can't handle it and it terrifies him because he doesn't want that 
He just wants to feel good at the expense of whoever he can get it from. Well, what do you think? Like, let's talk about the Cenobites themselves and the way that Barker describes them. What do you think of these characters? I don't know. It's like they're. I I I mean, okay. Let's let let's go back. If for some reason you have never read this novella and have never seen these creatures. They are humanoid creatures that are highly scarified and they have a lot of like metal and pins and wires and things embedded in their flesh. They're very scarified, they're very horrible looking, very sort of Hieronymus Bosch looking characters, white skin, leather suits. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of, like, there's religious imagery, there's imagery from the king community, there's body mod stuff, there's, like, punk and metal stuff. They're just kind of, like, a a sort of mishmash of all the things kicking around in some, like, punk or goth subconscious in the 80s slash early 90s. But I think the thing with the Cenobites is it's kind of hard. I think they're appropriately hard to get a handle on like, what their actual deal is and, like, what their morality is, because it's clearly alien to whatever our human morality is. Because when they first show up, when Frank does the ritual, they ask him over and over again if this is what he actually wants. Like, they're trying to get enthusiastic consent before they begin their play, which Frank gives, not understanding that, you know, this isn't going to be for him. Well, and then after that happens, it seems like the novel is kind of trying to draw a moral comparison between the Cenobites, who are frightening, but, like, morally neutral, and Frank and Julie, who are human, but terrible, because they don't they don't answer any sort of consent. They're preying on people and tricking them and pulling them into their play without any sort of, like, permission or idea, and then literally killing and feeding on those people. But then, when Kirsty summons the Cenobites, they don't give a shit about consent anymore. They're just like, hey... No ma- you open the box, so you're fucked, no matter what. Even Which begs the question of why were they asking Frank over and over again if he was cool with this, if they were just going to do it to him anyway. Which makes me think that maybe they were sort of, like, manipulating Kirsty, That they knew they needed her to get Frank for them, so they were playing like they were going to be more intense than they actually... They were playing like they were, like, more demonic than they actually are to try and get her to do their dirty work for them? I think you're right. I think there's two things. I think, one, they appear in a way, not like the Sandman where they appear visually in a way that you can understand. They appear and act in a way that they think that you want them to act. Sure. So when Frank summons them, it's through the ritual. He has the offerings. He's doing the ritual. So they come in, and it's almost like a religious experience. And then they're sort of... It's the same thing like when you get Holy Communion and when you go like to you go through your um, sacraments. The priest always asks you, is this what you want? Is this what you're doing? It's kind of the same thing. But then when Christy opens up the box, then they present to themselves as horrible demons because I think that's what they think she expects them to be. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. But I think what's interesting is that... The way that Pinhead looks in mm-hmm. other media is kind of a little bit different than how he's described in the book. In the book, Bar- uh, he describes him as having like a grid, a tattooed grid, and in between the intersections of the grid, there's pins, and the pins have jewels on them, mm-hmm. making him seem like like maybe a little bit more beautiful than he appears 
in the movies and things like that. Yeah, I think the movie definitely the movie makes them into monsters, whereas the like I said, the book is much more neutral on its position on the Cenobites. Like that's the same thing to to touch on the movie. They don't all that stuff I talked about with them asking for consent is completely gone in the movie. They appear and without any warning, just te- literally tear Frank apart. Like the the Cenobites of the movie are definitively evil in a way that whereas the Cenobites of the novel are a little more morally slippy and alien. Like the the movie Cenobites I think are sort of unambiguously they're demons. They're demons from hell. Whereas mm-hmm. the novels ones like they could be people who just like ascended to another like level of perverse enlightenment. Well that's like when I was thinking about the Cenobites when I was reading the novella I was because the female Cenobite, the way she's described, she made me think of sort of um, like Kali, like this Hindu yeah. goddess. You know, she had the tongues and she was sitting on the throne of skulls. And then I thought about Pinhead and his um, monastic style robe that he wears and his bald head. And I kind of like, okay, maybe they have some kind of preface that can be like alluded to, like. The symbols of other religions but then when i thought about the other two centipedes the one that's sort of worm-like and can't talk and i was kind of like okay i don't have no idea if these are actual supposed to be religious iconography I don't, I don't or think, they're just supposed to be monsters i don't think they're supposed to one for one map to pre-existing religious figures i think they're just like i said they're meant to invoke all of these things at once and using some specific religious imagery as part of that like i don't think she's definitively supposed to be kali but she's like you're definitely supposed to think of that. I think there's also like a weird Virgin Mary thing going on with her. Yes, with the with like, the clothing. Yeah. But I also think like with Pinhead with his like black long robes, that's almost like an Anglican minister's mm-hmm. outfit. I mean, I don't think it's like a Jurlach comment on Catholicism. I think it might be just like you said, a broad reference to religion and to sort of set that tone about these Cenobites have a religious slant and whatever i mean if you take the the tactic that they're kinksters then like yeah it kind of makes sense that at least one of them would be dressed like a priest like that's a big thing for a lot of people yeah yeah i guess that's true but you know what interestingly enough we talked about this before when we decided to pick the hellbound heart i don't think that this is a story i don't think this is a sexual story and i don't think this is a surrealist story I think this is a traditional horror story. Oh, and yeah. And the main reason I think that is because Frank gets his comeuppance. Well, yeah, it's like what we talked about with Salmon. This is structured like that sort of classical, you know, tales from the crypt, you know, horror story. It's like a, go- a person meddles in a thing beyond their understanding. A more powerful being appears, intervenes, and provides them with an ironic punishment. I, I don't think tonally it's a one-for-one map, but this could have easily been a Sandman story with a little a little tweaking i think especially that beginning part where frank has the sensory overload that's absolutely like a sandman punishment when i was reading this after just finishing in the previous episode where we talked about sandman and we talked about the episode with calliope Mm -hmm. this made me think a lot about that story and there were parts in there because i had said the same thing that calliope was almost like a gothic horror story sure and i felt the same way about this because it had sort of imagery and kind of a tone like the atmosphere that was set was sort of gothic and then like things like the bells and the music that he could hear and the sort of dampness and the wetness of the like frank's flayed imagery and like 
you know, the, the kind of, it's like set in a giant house and most of the action happens in the attic. And there's like a terrifying part where Frank is active in the attic and Rory is downstairs and he's like, what is that? And then Julie's like, no, 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 don't go up there. Cause it's almost like there's a monster in your attic and it's kind of, it's setting that sort of classic British horror kind of feel to it. I think he does. Yeah. Barker does an incredible job in this short, you know, novella layering on all of this stuff because there's all this stuff we've talked about already about um sex and religion and spirituality and whatever but there's also like that idea that like your skinless creepazoid brother's ghost is in the attic of the house you shared with your parents like that's incredibly charged imagery which is like the novel just kind of drops there and doesn't really explore in any real way but it is like yeah i totally get that well, I mean, we didn't even talk about this, but what about the storyline where Frank actually wears <laughs> his brother's skin? The part's rad. I love that part. I mean, he I literally mean, skins fun. his own brother and wears his skin, and then is kind of walking around like, what's up? I mean, he's literally trying to steal his his life. He's seduced his wife. He's infiltrated his house. He's, he kills him, and he takes his skin, and then tries to claim the only thing Rory had left, which was his friendship with Kirsty, which... I mean, I think there's a, a way, if you really want to, where you can read this Frank as a metaphor for an aspect of Rory. And it's like that kind of like insatiable dude thing where it's like you can't, where it's like he's going to ruin his friendship with his girlfriend by like imposing himself on her and being like, come to daddy. I don't think that's necessarily what the story's getting at, but that's definitely like a reading that is there. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear because. Frank shows up. It's almost like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like, Frank mm-hmm. shows up the day before his brother's wedding. This mild-mannered man is marrying this woman. He seduces her her in his house, on his bed, while she's wearing her wedding dress. And then, from that point on, sort of begins to... Julia becomes obsessed with him and taints the whole relationship that Rory and julia have until frank's return and then even when she's she's even more excited about being involved with him when he's wearing his brother's skin yeah but i'm saying i think you can there's a way to read this story where frank is the he's the beast inside of rory and it's not actually a story about a person having an affair it's a story about somebody two toxic people making each other worse and her drawing out the frank within rory until it becomes this thing where it's like, it's just a Rory skin over the Frank flesh and he's fucking everything up. I think you're right because I think it's sort of clear while she's like seducing these men and bringing them back that she actually enjoys killing them. Yeah, she's just as bad as Frank. Neither of them are capable of seeing other people as people. Frank sees them, they both see them as tools they can use. I mean, she literally calls the dude she murders lambs. Like she just completely in her mind is able to shunt off their humanity and to frank it people's humanity doesn't even occur to him at all he's just like i can take this person i can have this person like he's a total you know virulent narcissist yeah yeah do you have anything else to say about it because i mean we're going to start talking about hellraiser the movie um at this point what about oh yeah sure go ahead what about the fairy tale part of it because it kind of reads like a fairy tale. It's sort of a really, like, 
Um, we've talked before about the Tor Reread series, mm-hmm. serieses that they do, and they did one on 80s horror, which was way too short. I think they only did like four books, but the last one they did was The Hellbound Heart, and there's a part in that where I don't remember who wrote it, but I can look it up and put it in the show notes. They compared this story to Sleeping Beauty, where it's kind of like a super fucked up gender-swapped Sleeping Beauty, but there's also like kind of a Bluebeard thing with the like the... Except with, again, sort of gender-swapped with, like, dead men and this, like... Especially if you read Frank as an aspect of Rory, then you have, like, Kirsty entering this old house and discovering this dark secret about the man she loves, and then her life is endangered. I think you're right, and I think it becomes even more relevant when you compare it to the movie, because in the movie... Julia actually becomes the evil stepmother. Yep, exactly. So, I mean, it's even more heavy-handed. I wonder if Barker made a conscious decision to... If he recognized the fairy tale stuff and made a conscious decision to play it up in the movie. I think he might have. A lot of Barker's work, especially short stories, deal sort of with mythology and fables and with fairy tales. And, I mean, it's not as overtly clear as in like someone like Neil Gaiman's work, but it's obviously there. And you can see that. And also Christy is sort of, she's the virginal um, princess almost. You know, she's she has the white outfit on. And even in the movie, she wears a white dress. And, you know, like, I don't. it's never really explained why Rory takes up with Julia as opposed to Christy. But I think it must be like some kind of attraction to her darkness that she has. Christy's supposed to be light and innocent and she's supposed to have a very clear understanding of right and wrong, which is why she's able to make that deal with the Cenobites. Because that, to me, seems like a very cold thing. Like, she immediately is like, she's in there and she's like, is this real or not? And then immediately her thing is, let me make a deal with these monsters. I get I, That makes sense. I sort of read it as more of like, you know, Kirstie's arc in this story is about, like, acquiring agency. She's portrayed in the novel as being very socially awkward and sort of riddled with anxiety. There's that sort of depressingly relatable scene with her at the party in the book. Like, I think the idea is that just she was never assertive enough and Julie was there and she demanded attention and Kirstie didn't. And then by the end of the novel, like, she has enough agency to, like, decide to identify the monster and decide to take him out and make that deal with the Cenobite. And then I know she's touched on in some later works, but I would assume that after this, she's more assertive and self-assured. I think she's almost like a self-rescuing princess. Yeah, so she becomes over the... Yeah. I mean, she orchest- She even, like, even if she's not consciously doing it, she orchestrates the death of Julia. Because when Frank is fighting with Christy with the knife, she steps aside and Julia gets murdered. Yeah. And I kind of feel like she's, she was kind of like, at that point... That's where it's, it's like a slasher film at that point, Mm -hmm. but it's also the point where it pivots and Julia is not the one in power anymore and Christy is the empowered character in the story. Yeah. Also, uh, how great is that part where the engineer talks through Julie's severed head with the bridal veil on? I love that imagery so much. Yes, That That is 100% a comment on heterosexual relationships at that point. It's it's a very strange part. It's also just rad imagery. Talking several heads are cool and they're extra creepy if they have bridal veils on. I think there's a a lot of really good... I think Clive Barker's really good at creating... It's 
creating this horror imagery. It's different from H.P. Lovecraft where it's like, oh, I can't look. It's so horrifying. It doesn't really describe it. Like Clive Barker like takes that sort of visual aspect of like horror movies and brings it to literature. Yeah. In a previous incarnation of this podcast, we did an episode for Halloween where we discussed horror short stories. And one of the stories we discussed was Rawhead Rex. Um, and one of the things I talked about in that, which is like maybe my favorite thing about Clive Barker, who's one of my favorite writers, is that he makes he twists that, turns that Lovecraft idea on its head. It's not more like it speaks to his skill as a writer where he can be like, no, what you can imagine is not scarier than what I'm going to imagine. I'm Clive Barker. Allow me to describe in excruciating detail just how gross and awful this thing is. See, that makes a lot of sense because my question to you as the transition part from the novella to the movie is, did Clive Barker accidentally create one of the most iconic visual images in horror when he wrote about Pinhead? Or did he do it on purpose? I think he did it on purpose because if um, I wrote a piece for a website about collectibles called CompleteSet.com, I think the piece is still up there. You can find it. I wrote a piece about Hellraiser, and in that I talk about um, how Pinhead is one of the most underrated horror icons, but there are antecedents to him in works leading up to Hellraiser. I, I think he, he, he's been, like, workshopping this imagery, and I think even the version we get in the novel is, like, a prototype before we get the final perfected version in the movie. I don't think it's accidental at all. I think I think it's is the intentional end result of a slow process of refining all of this, like, like I said, like, religious and demonic and authoritarian and sexual imagery into this sort of perfect figure of the pinhead we get in the movie. So let's talk a little bit about the movie. So it was, um, it was written by Clive Barker. He directed it. He did the very primitive special effects at the end of the movie. Um... Yeah, the up until that end demon chase with um, I guess that's supposed to be the engineer or something at the end. Yes. Uh, the except for that, which is pretty doofy, the effects in this are amazing. It is the visual version of that thing I was talking about with Clive Barker being like, "No, allow me to tell you how scary this is actually is." Like um, that first sort of when Frank is first coming back. That long sequence of him, like, pulling himself out of the floorboards is, like, incredible. It's a perfect, like, visual representation of the way that's described in the novel. Down to, like, specific details. Like, he he talks about his head being, like, a ball of viscera, which is, like, absolutely what it looks like in the movie. But then he adds so much to it. Like, the idea that he's, like, distorting space and, like, having that kind of evil dead thing with him rising out of the floorboards with the light... Also, there's some, um, shall we say, honest imagery in that scene that you think that even in an R-rated movie they would have shied away from, which they absolutely do not. Well, I think it was interesting because when I was reading about the production of this, it originally had an X rating. Understandable. And I think, and it, I think even for the time, it came out in 1987, I think even for the time, it was sort of provocative. Let me tell you my backstory with this yes. movie. So I really like Clive Barker, and I read the short story, The Hellbound Heart. So when the movie came out, 
I was 16 years old and your father and I were dating. Mm -hmm. So we decided to go to the movies down at the Roxy. This is not the only time this, there, there is a similar story about a Henry portrait of a serial killer. Exactly. A couple years later. So anyway, we were dating, um, and we decided to go to this movie and it was rated R and we were obviously not of that age, but the Roxy didn't care. So we went to the movie and we saw Hellraiser on the big screen. God, man, I wish. I was completely terrified. And I was like, this movie like obsessed me for weeks after I was terrified of it. And it just sort of the imagery and the whole story. And then like Frank coming out of that, you know, out of the the flooring and the whole, just the whole thing like terrified me when the Cenobites came. And then there's the part where there's four pieces of Frank's face on the table. Oh, I love it. Oh, and the chains are whipping around. So I was terrified of that movie. And sure, it's a scary movie. Took a lot of heat for being like so terrified that I actually like was afraid to be alone walking down the street because I saw this movie. Never watched it again. Never watched any of the sequels and never read the novella again. Even though the novella to me was not as terrifying as this movie. Yeah, the novella is, like I said, the movie is expanded and there's just like... There is some imagery added to the movie that is not in the novella and is more disturbing. Like like you said, the part where Frank is literally torn apart and then his pieces of his face are on the ground and still moving, yes. which is chef kiss beautiful. I love it. Uh, that's not in the book at all. And it's no. so good. But people... So then when we decided to do the podcast and I, I boasted, I will watch this movie... And Nate laughed because he thought I wouldn't. I did not. Think and then, you as we were talking about it, people were saying it's not that scary. It's not that the special effects are so much. They're so much more primitive than what you see now. You've watched scarier movies. I think that's true. So I went ahead and I watched it. It was on Netflix during the day. Watched mm-hmm. it. Lights on. Watched the whole thing. Still terrified. I, I don't know if I'm conditioned to be afraid oh. of Pinhead at this point. But when I first saw him, I was terrified. And then later that night, there was a thunderstorm, and I woke up, and the first thought in my mind was just pinhead. Oh, no. So I had literally frightened myself. I made the mistake of eating pizza while I watched it, which was not a not a great food and movie pairing. Really, any food is a bad pairing with Hellraiser. But, but that's definitely a thing that, like, I, as a child... Was uh, super duper, like, my version of the Boogeyman as a kid, like, the thing that I was afraid of in the night was aliens. Like, like alien abduction. And so I was super afraid of the X-Files. And I was specifically afraid of the X-Files theme song. Even now, it still kind of creeps me. Like, I still get a little, like, you get transported back to then. And it's like, even though I, like, intellectually know there's nothing really inherently frightening about the X-Files theme, except that it's sort of a spooky song, I still get, like, transported back to that feeling of fear and get, like, re-scared every time I hear it. Which was bad because I re- I watched all of the X-Files when they put it on Netflix. And every time, even after watching all the episodes, hearing the theme song still gets me a little... Well, I think that's what it was. I think I had already preconditioned myself to be afraid of Pinhead. I did watch it. I'm, I did watch it. And I was glad that I did because it pointed out the differences between the novella and the movie. Do you want to talk about the main differences between the two? Sure. 
I think the biggest one is is recontextualizing uh, Kirstie as one a teenager and two the daughter of Larry instead of Rory, which completely changes the power dynamic of their relationship. There's none of that, you know, um, unrequited love thing, and I think that in turn sort of completely recontextualizes her relationship with Julie, where Julie was in the no- novel is still was a usurper but i think is that even more so in the movie because she's warming her way into or she's wormed her way into uh you know this relationship with larry and has upset the relationship between julie and her father and then has also replaced her mother and is this like cruel and cold figure yeah i think she's even more of a um like a, like you said, she's more of an evil stepmother than before. Yeah, she kind of becomes like, I think in the book, she's sort of like a weird take on like the captive, the like um, cursed prince archetype. Whereas in the movie, she becomes like the evil queen, the evil stepmother. Like she's, by becoming, by turning Kirstie into, you know, the daughter of Larry... Julie becomes, like, her power in the relationship becomes much more magnified. She doesn't really have any power over Kirstie in the novel because she's just, they're they're peers. Yeah, and I think in the novella she's more annoyed with Christy than she's, in the movie, it's kind of like, they really have, like, a distant relationship and it's not quite clear if it's because she's just, obviously she's a second wife. Or, because they don't really say what happened to Christie's mother. I assume she's dead. But she, yeah, by the time the movie starts, and they're also older. So in the novella, they're almost like in their 30s, late 20s, early 30s, they're just starting out. And now in the movie, the father's obviously older because he has a, she's even older, I think, than a teenager. Because she thinks she's like 18. She is a teenager, but she has just started living on her own. And... There's like a tension where it's like it feels like she's growing apart from Larry who tries to get her to move back into the house. He's much more like despite the fact that he's kind of a prick in the dinner party scene, he's much more of a character and much more likable in the movie than he is in the book. Yeah. In the book he's kind of just like a oblivious dope. Whereas like you kinda I feel really bad for him in the movie. Yeah, and I think that's kind of, and it, I think that works out better visually because when Frank does take his skin and he becomes the father, it's really clear that that's Frank wearing his brother's skin. Yeah. You know, and also I think because Frank is now an uncle, it loses sort of that drama of when he's wearing the skin and he says, you know, it's Frank, your uncle. Like, it doesn't seem as creepy as like... Yeah, it also I think kind of dulls the I, I think it's much harder to interpret the movie in a way where frank and rory are the same guy i think like the the what the imagery of frank is that he's like he's the bad uncle that should not be allowed around anymore yeah and i also he think doesn't that really feel like an aspect of his brother i think also the box the box is frank buys the box from some, like, shady antiquities dealer in some kind of Middle Eastern country. Yeah, they're, like, in, like, an opium den or something in Morocco. It's, I mean, it's a little Orientalist. 
And then at the end, the box is resold to another hapless victim. So it sort of seems like in the in the novella, it's very clear that Frank makes a conscious decision to open this box. And then it's sort of implied that maybe he's not partly to blame for opening the box in the movie because it's like sort of he's curious and he fiddles around and then he accidentally, you know what I mean? It's kind of like. I don't know. It's less of the, like, ownership of Frank's actions in the movie. I don't know if I picked up on that. I, I think, like, there's definitely... You don't get, like, the full, like, altar and jar of urine from the novel, but he definitely seeks out and buys the box in the movie. I think they just, like... It's just a little more narratively efficient to get him to opening it. I don't. I don't think the movie really makes any sort of an excuse... For his actions, and even if it was making an excuse for his actions in opening the box, once he's escaped from the Cenobite's realm, there's no excusing what he does at that point. Because that's the other thing, like, he's just feeding on, like, blood and stuff. She could just get him blood without killing anybody. Yes. There are predators. But that's why I, I love that. I love the whole aesthetic of her putting on her, like, 80s business yeah. outfit. And the music, the techno music while she's getting ready and she's going to the bar I kind of like that visual. That's like, it's very much like an empowered woman. I think the distinctions between the novella and the movie are just decisions to make the story fit into a horror kind of aesthetic. Because like, you know, the Cenobites are chasing Christie. And, you know, so there's kind of like more, and then the box being sent to someone else leaves, you know, the option of sequels. And I think it's kind of like the changes that were made to the story might not have been made to improve the story, but may have been made to improve the visual aspects of the movie. And I think that's why, like, Christy was changed to a younger girl because, you know, like, a younger girl being sort of in danger in a horror movie, so Freddy Krueger kind of thing is very, um, very 80s horror. Yeah, you know, I said, like, oh, do you think you made her younger to play up the... um fairy tale thing but the more logical explanation is just the studio asked for that because horror movies are horror movies especially in the 80s are about teenage girls being uh menaced by monstrous yeah. figures but, but i think this is a really good adaptation this is I, one of my favorite horror movies i think so too and i think it keeps with the fact that she's a self-rescuing princess because even though she has a boyfriend and the boyfriend shows up not she, tom hanks she ends up rescue yeah same hair, different actor. Super wanted him to be Tom Hanks. Yeah. Well, it, so she ends up rescuing herself as well as him. But I think... And then I just lost my train of thought. She rescues herself and the boyfriend. It keeps with her being a self-rescuing princess. That's what you were talking right. about. I don't know where you're going. I, I totally, totally... It's fine. It's no big. It'll come back to me. But, oh, I thought that the movie did really well in keeping the tension and suspense that Barker created in the novella. I like that the, and I don't know the technical terms for this, but the, the fact that the action was so closed in, in the house and the like the most pivotal scenes actually took place on the staircase. I thought that made it sort of claustrophobic and kind of scary. So I thought that was good. I mean, I really liked it. I, I liked it even though it terrified me and I think that's what made it so successful. And I think it was, it was interesting to me that the writer could take ownership of a story and create a movie. Because so often now authors aren't even 
consulted when they make movies of their books. Yeah, it used to be a much more common thing for the writer to write the adaptation or to do the at least the first draft of the script, which is not a thing we see so much anymore. But I think the reason that it's this is the way it is is because there were two other Clive Barker movies before this that he wrote, neither of which turned out how he wanted them to. Um, I think Rawhead Rex is better than he gets credit for. But neither of them were what he wanted, and he sort of took a stand and, you know, that he would have control over this movie so it wouldn't end up like those other two. You know, totally, you know, neutered and twisted by the studios. Maybe that's why it stands up so well. I really, I like the imagery of the box. I like the way that it was depicted. That's sort of sort of how I pictured it. I don't know if that's, like, the thing is now, because of the movie, I always picture it as the prop from the movie. I don't know how I would have pictured it um, had I not seen the film. I think I probably would have imagined it with more of, like, a mirror finish because she sees faces in it. Yeah. But, like, yeah, it looks great. It's, it's like, beautiful and creepy and, like, the very intricate, the way it comes apart. It doesn't seem like an especially hard puzzle to solve in the movie, though. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that it seemed like the rest of the movie was kind of low budget, that they would spend so much money to have a beautifully made box. The box is, like, the two things you really have to get right are the box and the Cenobites, which I think they do. They, they, they nail both of those aspects. And also the effect of, like, Frank in you know his degraded state in the attic i think that's true because when i was reading about the production and i was i mean when i talked about the special effects at the end pretty much what's happening is there's these you know the action is going on and then overlaid on the action is these sort of 80s neon looking like squiggles that are supposed to be like frank being sucked into the box and the centipedes opening the box you know it kind of felt like that like they like Clive Barker himself had said that they had ran out of money at the end of the movie, and that's why they have such like kind of stop motion action graphics at the end. Yeah, I can forgive that. That doesn't bother me too much. I mean, it's not any worse than like the gate. I mean, the stop motion is worse than the gate, but I mean, like the sort of like composite effects of like the portals and stuff isn't any worse. Than One of the things I thought was a really obvious misstep from Clive Barker and he talks about it in the book is the auditory um accents that he puts in there the bells tolling and the buzzings and the things like that to sort of forewarn people that the Cenobites are coming and then when Frank gets his comeuppance you know the very powerful bell that's ringing I felt like he should have put those in the movie oh and yeah. it really was kind of a misstep because it's kind of like that's the part where you know Frank is going to get his comeuppance is when you hear those bells. I do think the movie has a pretty uh, pretty good score. I'm mostly, I pay a lot of attention to that stuff for whatever reason. Um, and it's pretty good. It's by Christopher Young, who's done a bunch of... Like, he's done a bunch of horror movies and stuff. Really, I think this is probably, like, the most notable thing he's done, except for maybe Drag Me to Hell, the... Um, Sam Raimi movie. Oh, okay. But it's a very, like, I don't think it's um, groundbreaking, but it's a really solid, like, horror movie score. It's a little uh, elf mini in places. I like that Clive Barker took his own writing and turned it into a franchise. 
I admire that. I mean, not only the movies and additional stories, but there's also, like you said, video games and comic books. And I mean, the Hellraiser comic is critically acclaimed. I haven't read it. Have I you haven't read, read any of it either, but I, ha- I have heard, I have heard some good things about it. I've read other comics based on his stuff or like he, he had a, he had an imprint at Marvel for a little bit Really, that he was just like in charge. I think he was just in charge of it. Um, short-lived but it's an interesting idea i think i also read that victor laval the writer at some point was involved in the hellraiser comics oh well that's cool that seems like a good fit so i those styles are totally compatible i think laval's a little more restrained than clive barker is i think a lot of this the novella and the movie just really speaks to the environment at the time that it was created it is just like pure like 80s excess yeah that's like also in a previous incarnation of this podcast we discussed the most recent adaptation of it Mm -hmm. and i talked about how my preferred style of horror is this like kind of effects heavy maximalist horror that you see a lot in the 80s and then kind of like became supplanted by this you know more grounded, slow burn e let's not show the monster kind of horror that I think sort of became the predominant mode in like the mid 2000s. And I think this is a really good example of that where it just goes all out in like crazy effects and bizarre imagery and like here's the monster and here's a guy with no skin and like he's dripping with blood and semen look at all of this wild shit he's so moist he's very moist (laughs) i also thought it was interesting the depiction of the engineer who's sort of more vague in the novella but in the movie it's very clear that well it's clear at the end of the movie when the engineer takes the box out of the fire and he turns into a dragon and he Flies away, but at the point... That's, I think that's the worst part of the movie. I, the creepiest, one of the creepiest parts is when the engineer shows up at Christie's work. She works at the pet shop. Yeah. And he starts eating those crickets, and then the crickets are in his beard, and he's just, he's making, like, intense eye contact with her as he's eating a handful of crickets, and then the boyfriend's kind of like, what's going on? Like... That's what I'm talking about. Like, there's so much, there, there, there's all of this stuff that's, like build up of the like Cenobite's influence on the world and Kirstie's perception like leading up to the climax it's just not in the novel I think it was one of the things that was interesting and it doesn't feel bloated was the other part I was exactly. gonna get at like it it feels like it belongs there which is really impressive when we were just talking about the novella you made the point about Frank being the kind of guy who would buy a Buddhist statue one of the when they first move into the house She's looking around in the rooms and he has all these weird like um, shrines that he builds. And some of them are are Catholic. You know, he has like a statue of Mary. Some of them are other religions that he has statues of. And he's an evil Unitarian. It's yes, exactly. (laughs) And it's hard to tell in the very beginning if these are sort of worship shrines or if they're sort of like. 80s found art that frank is trying to create yeah see that's i think that's one of the 
the things you get from this being an adaptation by the writer is he understands Frank's character and what he wanted him to be. And I think had somebody else been adapting it, you probably wouldn't have gotten that detail and Frank's room would have just had like porno mags and shit in it. Whereas like this feels so much more like real and true to the character and like just this little visual touch like clues you into like what this dude's deal is and enhances the portrayal. I also think it's, I mean, it, visually it's very clear it's harder to convey that Julie and Frank had a previous relationship until they have the scene where she goes into his bedroom and he has that dirty, disgusting mattress on the floor and the pictures, the the sort of, you know, these erotic pictures that he's taken of women that he's had sex with and you realize one of them is Julia. But, I mean, if any person didn't know Frank, their first thought would not be to sit down on that bed. Oh, so She gross. has no problem sitting down on that bed and going through his stuff because then you realize she knows Frank. Yeah, and then she finds a picture and of him. And then she finds a picture of herself. And we get an actual flashback, which is maybe a little bit of a clumsy storytelling technique, but I think is fine. And I think, like, that does a lot to, like... Because him, like, seducing her is so, like, uncomfortable. And it's like, oh, both these people really suck. Also, I think having Frank have this, like, weird bedroll, like, gross nest is, like, another clue into just how much this dude sucks. Because he's, like, a fake, he's, like, a crust punk with a trust fund. Because clearly his family has money, they have this giant old house, and he's living in it. But he still has to front, like, he needs to sleep on, like, a, you know, a little mattress in Mm -hmm. his gross sex den. Yeah, exactly. He really sucks. He's a very bad dude. And he's indicative of a lot of very bad dudes. I think I said it before. You can you pick it up in Sandman. But, like, man, did, uh, did horror writers in the 80s fucking hate yuppies? Well, here's the thing. There's two things that are iconic in Clive Barker's writing that come across very clearly. And one of them is your favorite thing. The first thing is this male sexual predator. And then the second is this toxic masculinity. Yeah, a lot of a lot of and time, Frank is both. Yes, a lot of times in Clive Barker's work, the like it's very literal in like Rawhead Rex, but yeah, a lot of times the monster is toxic masculinity, and that's very refreshing to see like somebody taking that down and exposing, you know, all of this macho bullshit for how gross and disgusting it really is. Because I think there is in the seventies a character like Frank would have been the hero of a story. Like, I've been rereading Ringworld. This is a weird comparison to make. Mm-hmm. But, like, I really like Ringworld. And I think Larry Niven has a better handle on characterization than people give him credit for. Because he's known as being, like, the hard sci-fi guy. But, like, one of the worst parts of Ringworld is some of the characterization of Louis Wu. Who's this, like, very, like, boomer, sexual, adventurer, like, cultural imperialist dude. And, like... Boomers loved that kind of guy and were constantly exalting the value of him. And now we are seeing this movement now where a lot of those kinds of dudes or dudes who tried to be that kind of dude are actually getting called out for being predators. Well, I mean, who doesn't love a character like Han Solo? Han yeah. Solo is a sanitized version of this type exactly. of character. I think one of the reasons why I like Clive Barker's writing is because... It's not necessarily of the most of the 80s where a woman is a strong character because in Clive Barker's work, the woman or the man could be equally horrible. And that sort of the roles are changing. And he doesn't 
go with that formula of like a male predator attacking a woman. Some of the male predators attack other men. Some of the male predators are monsters. Some, you know, so there's, there's sort of like, he's not saying that this is the roles that women and men play. He's saying women and men can play roles that are interchangeable. And that was sort of provocative at the time that he was writing because most of the time in a horror story, the women are damsels and they need to be rescued. And there's always a good male and an evil male and they have to have a conflict. And Clive Barker says, okay, well, what if the, the evil male was a woman? And what if the man who would, what if the person in distress was a man? Or what if the person in distress was being attacked by an evil monster? So he takes those sort of gender roles and societal roles and kind of like flips them around. Yeah, I think the thing with Barker, the, the closest he gets to the, I think the thing with a lot of his writing is that it's not like the masculine is evil and the feminine is good. Like, it's just that entitlement and, you know, predation and abuse is bad and, like, empathy and compassion is good. Most of his heroes are, you know, portrayed as being sort of more sensitive and emotionally intelligent than the forces they're up against. That doesn't always work out for them. A lot of times they end up dying anyway. And I think the closest he gets to that more simplified thing is in Rawhead Rex, where it's like uh, the giant murder penis is scared of like the literal image of like femininity and fertility. But I, now I don't remember. Now I don't realize. I don't remember where I was going with that. How many of these monsters are actually Margaret Thatcher? That's the question that I always think about when I think about Clive Barker. I mean, probably a lot of them. <laughs> Probably a fair amount of, of Martyr Thatcher monsters. I think that's inescapable with British writers in the 80s. All the bad guys are, are Martyr Thatcher. Or they're people that Martyr Thatcher would have made excuses for. Oh yeah, I don't know. Do we have anything else to, to say about the Hellbound Heart or Hellraiser? No, I think they're both... I think they're both interesting in their own ways. And I think, like you said, it, they're both companions to each other. Yeah, I think, again, like, a part of why it's such a good adaptation is that, like... It doesn't cancel out the book, even if it is like an sort of an expansion of it. It's still worthwhile to read I, and watch them both. I think what's interesting to me, thinking about the phenomenon of Pinhead, is that in the novella, Pinhead has such a small part. He's not even the lead Cenobite. He's not even like the high priest. He's sort of like he has a very small role. He's mentioned very shortly. He doesn't have any active interaction with Frank other than saying, like, did you summon me? But for some reason, pop culture has fixated on this character. Well, I think that, like, they realized that that imagery was compelling. And it's imagery that he had explored before in, like, art installations and stage plays and stuff. And so he just expanded the role that that image has in the movie and that sort of rightfully became the thing people latched on to because it is the most like immediately arresting uh, like all the Cenobites are, are sort of creepy and interesting but like this dude with the nails in his head and this like leather priest Cossack with the little like exposed flaps of mutilated flesh is like immediately compelling and like it just it sticks in your brain do you think like a pin in your head do you think that he is sought after because he's the least grotesque i think he's the most human looking of them all 
Yeah. I mean, the kind of like the really large kind of, he's almost the really large one with all the... Butterball? Yeah. He's kind of like this sort of like 1600s kind of excessive Pope imagery that I get from him. It's kind of grotesque. And then the one that sort of looks like a worm monster. He doesn't even look human at that point. And then the woman is very intimidating. Yeah. I mean, with her, like, body modifications, her scarifications. I think the problem with her, she, I think you're right, like, Butterball's also the most, like, you touched on it before, but he feels the most, like, Boston to me. The female centibite, who I don't think actually has, like, a definitive name in the way the other ones do, her and Pinhead, I think them being more human makes them a little bit more compelling, because it's, like... The, the horror of what they are is more immediate to you. I think the thing with the Lady Cenobite is just that her imagery is very close to Pinhead's, but less dramatic. They prefer Woman Cenobite, not Lady Cenobite. Lady Cenobite is going to be the name of, that's my pop alter ego. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she's like, she's got the same like body mod stuff going on as Pinhead. It's just not as dramatic as the like, all the pins in his head and the grid. Which I think is why he's, and he just is like more front and center, which I think is why he's the one who's more iconic. Also, Doug Bradley's performance is just really, like, it's compelling and arresting in a way that, like, I think it's up there with uh, Robert England as Freddy Krueger. In terms of, like, horror icons. She is just listed as female Cenobite. Yeah, see? Yeah. But it's also like, what would you call her? Like, she doesn't... She, I think she could have maybe taken another pass on design at some point. She's the least distinctive. I think so. She's still creepy. Like, the imagery is still solid. It's just, like, not as, you know, like I said, not as distinctive as the other ones. Do you want to talk about what we're reading next, or do you want to get right into recommendations? Do you have a... Well, let's do recommendations, and then we'll, do, we'll finish off with what we're reading next. Okay. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you can go first. So my recommendation, and I mentioned him earlier in the podcast, is the 1982 novel Fever Dreams by George R. R. Martin. And um, this is this was published when he was writing horror. So then he, he sort of, Martin likes to be sort of genre specific when he's working on things. He has a sci-fi period. He has a fantasy period. He has a horror period. So this is clearly from his horror period. And it's a vampire novel set in the 1850s that takes place on a Mississippi steamboat. There's a steamboat race. <laughs> the vampire is, is involved in a steamboat race. And George R. R. Martin pitched it, according to his own notes, to his publisher as saying it's Bram Stoker meets Mark Twain. So I was thinking about this because I saw a preview for another adaptation of a George R. R. Martin novella, Night Flyers, which is coming to sci-fi in the fall. So I was thinking about, he describes Night Flyers as psycho in space. So he likes to say blank is blank and compared to what he's writing. And I thought that was one of my favorite takes that he made, which was Bram Stoker meets Mark Twain. Yeah, I like, I like Fever Dream a lot. It might actually be my favorite thing of his that I've read. Uh, it's a, I, we talked previously on this podcast about how much I like vampire stories and it's a, it's a really good one. I think this one is the sort of, you get this sort of sophisticated, genteel vampire, almost like interview with a vampire. But he's, yes, I think it's like, 
a predates Interview with the Vampire, right? Uh, yes. This is 1982. 1982. When did, when did Interview with the Vampire? I think that was 87. Okay. Like, but it was it's... not a success when it first came out, Fever Dream. It has had a resurgence based on his success yeah. with the Game of Thrones. But I think what he's doing in Fever Dream is, like, it's, it's sort of that genteel Interview with a Vampire vampire, but... I think at its core, what it is, is that classical Dracula, like, I'm putting on a front of nobility, but I'm just a awful monster kind of thing. Like, I think the, the vampires in Fever Dream are, they're not as romanticized as an Anne Rice vampire. Right. And I feel like he just sort of wanted to write a story about a steamboat. Sure, but they who were doesn't? Like, they were like, George, no one's going to read a story about a steamboat race. So, he came up with this. Uh... Yeah. All right. Cool. Do you have any recommendations? Sure. I'm going to recommend... What am I going to recommend? I've just pulled it up. Oh, I'm going to recommend Grim Scribe, His Lives and Works by Thomas Ligotti, which is a collection of horror short stories by Thomas Ligotti. Uh, He's, you know, one of the... I think along with, like, Clive Barker is one of the most acclaimed horror writers of the sort of modern age. I don't agree with him philosophically he's very like his work is very nihilistic and anti-natalist uh but i if you want to revel in some revulsion at like the human form and human existence you really can't go wrong with this stuff uh this story this collection contains the last feast of harlequin which is one of the creepiest stories i've ever read and deals very heavily with the idea that like the human form is grotesque on its own like we already live in a state of body horror, and let's dig into that in this story. I think it, it takes a, it takes a certain amount of technical skill to write a horror short story. Oh yeah, it's it's hard. Let me tell you from firsthand experience trying to do it. It's way harder than you think it is. Yeah, because I think it in the short story format, you only have a short amount of time to create that tension to create. I mean, I think that's why people are so drawn to Edgar Allan Poe's short stories is because he's able to create a tension that fits into the format of a short story. Now, whether, you know, I'm conflicted about Edgar Allan Poe. I I think it's hard. I think (laughs) you're going to end up, I think it's hard to find a horror writer, especially before like, the early 2000s that you're not going to end up feeling conflicted about even Clive Barker as much as we praised him and as much as like I love his writing and it's important to me personally he edges into the exploitative a lot exactly I think he's it's usually in pursuit of like a, a message that I generally agree with like I said like usually he's edging into that as an attempt to take down like exploit or to critique exploiters but you know sometimes when you're parodying a thing, you just do it. Well, here's the thing that gets me about Edgar Allan Poe, especially compared to someone like H.P. Lovecraft. Like Poe, Talk about complicated feelings. Poe's political beliefs and his beliefs about women are often set aside because he has this literary sort of kingship, like where he's, you know, everybody loves, he's such a great writer. He invented the mystery. Yes. And, but then the detective also, story. A lot of the work that he has written, the works that he is known for that make him this sort of iconic American writer are his best takes. 
But then there is 70% of what he writes that is boring, pedantic crap. And people kind of just forget about that. So they give a pass to Edgar Allan Poe for being a weirdo and a pedophile and a drug addict and all this stuff because they like the telltale heart. It's weird that he doesn't have the kind of reputation that Lovecraft does. Like... People will just recommend Edgar Allan Poe and talk about him and they won't they don't feel as compelled to touch on how much of a shit he was as they do when they talk about something somebody like Lovecraft. I don't know if that's because Lovecraft was more contemporary or whatever, but like I feel like if you're gonna say HP Lovecraft is a shit, but he was a great writer, you might as well say the same thing about Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Can Lovecraft's a better writer than Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, 100%. Is, am I wrong for saying that? No. You're supposed to say, does that make me a monster? Does that make me a monster? It does. Well, he is. I mean, they both... <laughs> I, I mean, I grew up was a great writer, too. I, I agree with you that a lot of his stuff is not great. Not as good as his other stuff. But yeah, they're both both we, real shit heels. We talked about Lovecraft a lot. And we talk yeah. about Victor Laval quite a bit. And I think the dedication that he writes in the Ballad of Black Tom oh, it's perfect. sums up exactly how a lot of people feel about H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. I mean, if he just was not a racist... He, was, he, he, was, he was bad in other ways. He was also a sexist and a homophobe and an anti-Semite, but was then also married to a Jewish... He, he was, he's a complicated, shitty dude. Yes. But the, um, the dedication in the Ballad of Black Tom, for those who don't know, is literally just... Uh, it's to to H.P. Lovecraft and all my complicated feelings. Yes, a variation of something that. like that. But I wanted to see, um, before we wrap up and and get on to what we're going to read for next time, I wanted to say something about the craft of writing a horror story because I had a realization while you were talking about it. Writing a horror short story is like writing a pop song because more so than I think a lot of other kinds of fiction it's about like building up attention and releasing it's like writing a pop song but you're only allowed to have one chorus and it's at the very end of the story like you you have to like build this vibe and carry people along till your big explosive chorus and sometimes you can subvert that and not have it be so explosive but it's a different like writing a mystery story is also very hard but that requires you constructing like an intricate thing where it's like writing a horror story is an exercise in like restraint up until it's an exercise in lack of restraint that's and that's that's it's difficult because you a lot of times you just end up writing something that's really boring because you're trying to build the atmosphere and you're not doing a good job of it and it can also be like the process of writing it can become excruciating as you're, you yourself are like waiting to get to that part of release. And you have to slog through all this like building of the atmosphere and the tension. And, you know, it's, it's hard. Hmm. That's a good insight. Um, what are you reading? Are you reading anything good? Am I reading anything good? Um, I've been, like I said, I've been rereading Ringworld. I'm on a bit of a, a sci-fi space opera-y kick. I've been reading... Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi, which is really good. Uh, I like him a lot as a writer. Speaking of writers who are not shits, John Scalzi. Is yeah, he's a, he's a cool dude. <laughs> he he makes awful and terrifying burritos, but <laughs> otherwise he seems like a stand up guy with some great cats. Yeah, Collapsing Empire is really good. It's the 
it's the strongest, like, this should be a TV show reaction I've had to reading a book in a while. Like, he does a really good job of setting up this... People compare it to Dune a lot, mm-hmm. which I don't think is necessarily what he's going for. But it is this, like, really rich, you know, space empire world with, like, lots of... His handle on, like, character voices is really solid. I think a lot of times the danger was reading, like, hard sci-fi or space opera is, like... Uh, these characters are just like figureheads reciting lines at each other and they're trying to be like Shakespearean where these characters are like a little bit more gritty, a little bit more real and vulnerable, which I think is something he's really good at in general. I've only read one of his books and I read it for the Hugo list, which was Red Shirt. I enjoyed it a lot and I thought it was like, it kind of broke that like the fourth wall of like, characters being self-aware it was very interesting i like that a lot and that was the same thing i thought when i read red shirts they should make a mini series out of this because it's a really interesting story i'm honestly surprised that that hasn't happened i remember when like sci-fi was making that big push and they acquired the rights to all these books and comic books like i was genuinely surprised that red shirts wasn't one of them and like maybe now that like star trek is coming back we might get a, a red shirts adaptation. I think it could be really good. Oh, I think it would be very interesting. So, I am reading the opposite of an interesting hard <laughs> sci-fi. For my Hugo Award wrist, I'm reading Sci Team by C.J. Cherry. It is extremely difficult to read. I mean, it's like a military political hard sci-fi. Seems like that would be right up your alley. Six hundred fifty pages. I really like Down Below Station, and I had high expectations for this, but it is just, it is just so boring and slow, and there's a ton of characters, and there's really not a lot of action, and even, like, I don't expect a lot of, like, fast-paced action in some of these longer sci-fi stories, but for some reason, this just, I just can't get, I mean, I have to, like, make myself read five pages of this a day because I will never get finished if I just don't read it because I don't want to read it. Is it, I've never read this. I read Down Below Station. I read some of her other stuff. Is it just, does it feel like self-indulgent? Is that what's going on or is it just like. It's a really slow burn political military action that takes place in a sci-fi setting. Hmm. And I feel like, I don't know. I mean, that's that's what I was talking about. That's why Collapsing Empire is so good, is that he's able to, like... It's part of why I was like, oh, there should be a TV show of this. Because he has, like, a very, like, screenwritery take to the, like, dialogue and characterization. I think that this book suffers from... I mean, she's a good writer. And the world of Saiteen that she created, this sort of universe, this, uh, this world that she built... Is interesting, but I think the problem with this book is it suffers from poor editing because mm. there's so there's like three or four major plot points, and they're not interwoven, but they're interfiled. Oh, and I kind of felt like if they would have just taken them apart and made them into like even just book one, book two, book three, it might have been more interesting. But you know, I'm like forty percent through the book, and at some point, there's no. There's no sign that any of these plot points are going to interweave into one story. So 
you know, by the time you get invested in one plot point, you know, they have these like things called Azzies, which are clones. So one, by the time you get involved in like the military portion of it, it switches to a different story. So you can't even really invest in all of the characters and all the characters are boring and not fleshed out. That is a real risk. Like I said, that's a real risk you run with science fiction, especially older science fiction. I think it's I think it's better now. I think more sci-fi writers understand that like your characters should act like people. But I think it's kind of like when we were talking about Blue Mars. That's kind of like a political and military sci-fi 600-page story that has 500 characters and they're He's literally going into detail about how to like terraform Mars. Like he gives yeah. you so much technical detail. But then he realizes that like, oh, these characters need to have like some kind of human feelings. And then also some kind of action has to happen. But Cherry's kind of like, these characters don't have any feelings. They're robots and they're, you know, they're, they're clones. Mm-hmm. They're clones and they, they don't have any feelings. So therefore there's no emotion in this book. Yeah. And it's kind of like real. I don't know why this won a Hugo Award. It's not even weird enough to be like this one because it's weird. It's not even like The Wanderer weird. It's just The Wanderer is very weird. So. Yeah, that's a it's a problem. I mean, I think that's part of why science fiction had such a poor rep. Books. I'm not. I don't want to bash C.J. Cherry, especially because I know she's written other stuff that I like. I really like Down Below Station, and I felt like that even that didn't have a huge amount of like bombastic space opera action but it had enough and it had interesting characters that you cared about i don't care that a guy who has no emotions has a clone that has even less emotions and they spend their evenings drinking whiskey and talking about these educational tapes that they they literally watch educational tapes and there's transcript transcriptions of the tapes in there and it's kind of like i think 2001 a space odyssey kind of poisoned a lot of people's sensibilities because that's the characters in that are very flat, very unemotional, but it's to the service of the film. And also the film is able to lean on this very like lush, well-realized visual imagery that you don't get in a novel. Also sighting. I don't know if this is like young adult, dystopia kind of culture now that we live in but i think like when i hear the word side teens you think cyber teen i'm thinking that yes <laughs> i think that this is like that has something to do with teenagers and it really doesn't yeah i don't i mean i'm going to keep reading because once i start i can i'm committed and i'm going to finish this but i've kind of like i think this is the most disappointing book that i have read so far for the hugo for the hugo what are you what is your is this your least favorite that you've read for the hugo so far what is your favorite? I think I don't I don't have a novel that's my favorite, but I think the most surprising thing that I didn't realize I liked so much was Robert Heinlein. So that's what I was just about to talk about that because it's I mean, I I don't like Heinlein as a person. No, and exactly. I think, but it's like it's crazy that his stuff came out and was so well regarded and so celebrated and we still got in its wake we still got books like Cytine because he understood that like I find the moon is a harsh mistress to be like ideologically repellent but like he gets it the characters in the moon is harsh mistress they act like people they're funny like there are good characters in that story and 
I think that's the mold that Kim Stanley Robinson was working in with the Mars books. Like you said, like understanding there's got to be some action. These characters got to have some kind of human element. And it's like people seem to have learned all the wrong lessons from Heinlein. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. And some of the things that I thought I would really like, I, you know, just kind of lukewarm. Like I thought like, oh, you know, I haven't read any Asimov. I'll really like that. I didn't, didn't really do anything for me. And then things that I thought were like so weird, like Fritz Lieber and Jose Farmer. I was kind of like, this is how, like, I don't know if I'm going to get into this 70s kind of goofball sci-fi. And I really did enjoy all of those things. And I kind of... I knew that I liked like William Gibson and I knew that I liked that sort of um, 80s kind of um, technology, kind of writing about like technology and things like that. So I knew I would enjoy those types of books, but I was surprised at some of the stuff I did end up enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. Fritz Lieber might, is one of the, it's weird because I don't necessarily, I think in a, in a lot of circles he's got the, he's perfectly correctly rated. But I think in the broader sort of like SFF and like even broader than that, like the lit scene, he's one of the most underrated writers. Like, I think people know sort of like through like D&D stuff about like Fafford and the Grey Mouser and they don't realize all this other stuff he wrote that's just like really compelling and weird and exciting. He's got like a very sort of fun loose tone that i don't think you get in a lot of like older science fiction and fantasy yeah i I could see that i think it's interesting with this hugo because i've read a couple other award-winning lists and i think what's really telling about the overall hugo awards is that you can see the progression of the style of sci-fi and you can also see very clearly where sci-fi starts to blend with fantasy oh yeah and I think, like, you know, you can see, like, the 60s sort of goofball, 70s goofball sci-fi, hard science from the 1950s, this sort of element of fantasy being meld that started in, like, the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, you get, like, Dream Snake and, and stuff like that. Tech- and then the technophobia, and then that return back to hard science, you know, like, the three-body problem, that return to, like, the mathematical and the scientific, like, movement of science fiction, and then now going into the newer awards, you know, like N.K. Jemison, start to see sci-fi mixing with like speculative fiction and very clearly absorbing that type of fringe into the mainstream, yeah, yeah. which I think is interesting. Absolutely. Oh, we t- we've talked before about how like the big three of science fiction is this kind of sort of gross male chauvinist fantasy that erases a lot of women. But to engage with that concept briefly, we are we in agreement that Clark is the best one of the bunch? I think, yes. And I think Clark is also the most noodly. He's kind of the most, like, believe it or not, I, I feel he's the most experimental. Oh, yeah. He more does s- bring in sort of elements of, like, you know, he uses a lot of, like, traditional literary devices. And it's almost like Dan Simmons where he's writing a literary sci-fi novel you know it's very artsy it's very classic and it kind of takes the components of a traditional sci-fi novel and moves it into the like a new modern style i think he has the benefit of being the least in love with his own ideas i think that's the downfall of a lot of asimov stuff is like 
Asimov, there's there's nothing in the world Asimov loved more than his own giant brain. And so, like, you get stuff that's a little like, okay, dude, chill out. I, I, like, I get it, man. You had a, a bit crazy idea. Now, please tell an actual story. I and think... I think, like, Heinlein is, like, he's probably the best, like, technical writer of the three. I think, like, in my mind, Heinlein's probably, like, he's, like, the Hemingway. And, and oh. Clark is kind of, like, the Faulkner. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't think they had, like, an acrimonious relationship or anything. Heinlein is definitely the one you would least want to talk to at a party. I think so. I think Arthur Z. Clarke sounds like he would be, like, a lot of fun. Like, he sounds like he would be, like, intellectually engaging and have these sort of provocative ideas. He's almost like how you would picture a professor. Like, he's talking to you, and then he's engaging you in this story, then making you think about things. And, I mean, it's just... I don't know, like the, the Fountains of Paradise. Like I read that one and I really love that sort of story about building this giant elevator and then bringing in this sort of components of like Hindu religion into and the gods into the story. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and I think there's like this weird, like, not weird, but there's kind of like this softly melancholy quality to a lot of his writing. Like his vision of the future is kind of bittersweet it's not necessarily like totally dystopian and and like depressing but it's also not like rah rah we're gonna go to space it's like just you know i think it's more realistic it's almost like william gibson it's more realistic we are most likely going to see a version in the future of what our world is like now as opposed to seeing like a version of the world that's like side team we're not going to be traveling to universes and creating new worlds mm -hmm. in our lifetime, you know, and we're not going to have hover cars, but we're going to have things like augmented reality and we're going to have people taking current technology and moving it to the next level. And that's what this whole thing with the space elevator is. Yeah. You know, he pretty much says, okay, we have elevators. How do we move it to the next level? That's the kind of technology we're going to see. We're going to see computer technology and things like that. We're not going to see, like, you know, a ring world. Like, people building, like, these alternative space colonies and things well, like that. Well, I mean, I think that's... They cop to that in ring world where it's like... It has to have been built by ancient aliens that were far more advanced than any civilization that currently exists. Like, I, th I think... That's, that's an easy a... way in sci-fi. It's the same thing with oh. fantasy. It's the easy way... To resolve a difficult plot point. That's like always like, you know, that whole thing about it's magic or, yeah. you know, we live in a world where magic exists and now we can build, you know. So I think like Arthur C. Clarke is saying like, let's look at science now. Let's look at fiction now and let's meld them together into like something that's a little bit more plausible. I mean, sure, you want high fantasy, high side where, you know, you can have like a ring world, but like. But it is literally magic. To quote our boy, R.D.C. Clark, any sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic. Yes, interesting. I just wanted to quickly talk about, um, since we're talking about sci-fi writers and things like that, I wanted to quickly talk about how I got duped by a recommendation that you gave to me. Oh no, what did I do? I read The Fifth Heart by Dan Simmons. I didn't Would recommend you, that. I just you, recommended him as a writer. You told me that that was a Sherlock Holmes story. Did I? You did. So I read it. It is a Sherlock Holmes story, but it's also a Henry James story. I, so is Sherlock... that not also a plus? 
Okay. So Sherlock Holmes joins up with Henry James to solve a mystery. Which even Dan Simmons has the option to make Henry James less pretentious and less boring and chooses not to do it. Well, it wouldn't be true to the character and the man himself. Which writer would you most want to see Sherlock Holmes team up with and which writer would you least want to see him team up with? I would have to say the least one would have to be Henry James. Really? Because my answer is uh, Thomas Hardy. (laughs) At least Thomas Hardy liked the party. He did. That's true. Henry James is kind of like a stick in the butt. Like he even there's a point in there where they're in a dangerous situation, and his whole thing is Henry James is afraid, and Sherlock has to yell at him and saying, "Stop being afraid." <laughs> um, here's the one I would most want to see, and it would take a lot of heavy narrative lifting or just magic, magic, uh, and it would be. Is this a pause my, for... My brain is breaking. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson. I had that thing, there's a word for it, where you just can't say a word, like even though you've got it in your brain. Hunter S. Thompson. I would want to see him and Sherlock Holmes team up. They could do drugs like, together and solve a mystery. I feel like... Wear you, hats. You could just have Hunter S. Thompson... Think that he's seeing Sherlock yes. Holmes? Yeah, there you go. You could write that. Okay. Yeah, that was the first... We gotta go. Nate's writing a book. That was the first thought I had when I had that idea. That's pretty funny. Okay. Do we have anything? Uh, we have to talk about what we're reading next. Oh, yeah, yeah. We are we're going back to Sandman. I think you probably could have figured that out if you've been listening to the podcast. We're going to do Sandman Volume 4, Season of Mist. I always want to call it Season of the Mist. That's what I have it written down as. No, I think it's, it's just Season of Mist. It's got more Kelly Jones art, more Mike Dringenberg... Matt Wagner, Malcolm Jones III, P. Craig Russell, who previously on this podcast I recommended his adaptations of the Elric stories. Um, I think that's it. Uh, Steve Olaf, I think, does some of the colors. Here's what I have. Here's what I have for next up. I have a note that says family time with two exclamation points. And it says Lucifer, Hell, Boarding Schools, American Gods, Some Fairies, Destiny, and Delirium. Yeah, this is um this is a uh, this is where it kind of kicks into the the overarching plot kind of kicks into overdrive in this one, right? I think so. This is also the one that sets up the Lucifer comic, which was ad- adapted into the show. So yeah, this is going to be a good one. But yeah, uh, to clarify what I meant, Neil Gaiman's writing it. Pencils are by Kelly Jones, Mike Dringenberg, and Matt w- Wagner. We saw those two previously. Wagner is probably best known for. Um, he did some Batman comics that sort of take off of the... They're sort of set after Frank Miller's year one, but they go back and re-ad- readapt some of the earliest Batman stories published. And then also he's known for his creator-owned series, Mage, which is very sort of uh, fits kind of into the movement of Sandman because it's like a modern-day urban retelling of King Arthur. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, Sandman Volume 4, Season of Mist... Uh, that's what we're doing next time. I think we're done, right? I think so. So, uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned, don't open any puzzle boxes, and have a spooky, ooky, ooey, gooey Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Bye.